0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast.
1: 24 hours ago, we had the breaking news that Dak Prescott had reached a new deal with the Dallas Cowboys. Now that the dust is settled and you look at the numbers and you think about it on a day where free agency and franchise tags were all of the conversation in the NFL. There's one important thing about Dak's contract that matters to everybody. With the money, and I'm going to tell you why it matters to your favorite quarterback. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. we got some great guests that will join us on the Goodyear hotline. We're going to start right away with some straight talk. Straight talk wireless brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. The middle class is done at the quarterback position in the NFL. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, Obviously, there is a moment where you can look at the $40 million being spent for Dak, and you can say, okay, well, that's Dak, and he's doing his new deal, and whatever. That doesn't impact my favorite team. Yes. Yes, it certainly does, because as you start to look at the trickle-down effect, you have to ask yourself, what's the going rate now for pretty good? Let's be real. If all of our favorite teams had great quarterbacks, we wouldn't even care about this conversation. But most of us are fans of teams that have – Pretty good quarterbacks, quarterbacks we think might be on the rise, quarterbacks that we think might become the guy, quarterbacks that we think have potential to eventually be that guy. But what do you do when you're in that section and you're trying to find out the worth? I was talking to my buddies on Raider Nation Radio today, and they asked me about Derek Carr, and this is what really had my head swimming around it. Like, what is the value of a quarterback now that's in that top half of the league spectrum? And so I looked up the numbers, and this is why it impacts everybody, sure, Dak's going to make an average annual value of forty million dollars next year, uh, in twenty twenty two. In fact, Mahomes going to make forty five. Dak's going to make forty. Deshaun Watson's going to make thirty nine. You can compartmentalize all that and say, but yeah, that doesn't affect my favorite team. Oh heck yeah, it does. The tenth highest paid quarterback in twenty twenty two is Ryan Tannehill at twenty nine and a half million dollars. Now, we know Lamar Jackson's going to get a new deal. We know that Josh Allen's going to get a new deal. And as all of these quarterbacks continue to get new deals, they're going to want to put themselves near the top of the spectrum yet again. And What's that mean? That means that there's only two categories left in the NFL. Either you're a guy playing on a rookie deal, a guy trying to get paid, or you're a guy that's gotten paid in the highest possible way. A decent quarterback now is going to cost your favorite team at least $30 million. Get comfortable with it. 30 million. I mean, you can look across the spectrum right now and see that Teddy Bridgewater in 2022 would be slated to make 21 million bucks if he's still with Carolina. Carr, I mentioned, 25 million. Stafford, 27 million. These are all contracts that are at this point outdated. When you see the money first go out, it's shocking. And one of our callers last night mentioned that, hey, you got to pay them early because then you get more comfortable with it. And the new contracts will eclipse the old ones. That's absolutely true. I mean, at some point right now today, you can look at the money being spent and say, oh, if you're a Cowboys fan, it's a little uncomfortable. But by the time these other deals do get done, by the time Lamar gets paid, by the time Josh Allen gets paid, it won't feel that bad. You remember when Derek Carr signed his long-term extension, a lot of people looked at it and said, how could you give Derek Carr $25 million a, a, a year? Now, just a few years later, we turn around and say, oh, look at Derek Carr's contract. He's only getting $25 million. The new rate for an okay quarterback, is $30 million. Spain and fits on ESPN Radio. So what does that mean moving forward? Well, that means that you're going to have to decide quickly if you've got your guy, and you're going to have to pay that guy $30 million, or you're going to have to dip back into the draft more often than you think. I don't think when there's no middle class, all of a sudden, when you're looking around and you don't have a quarterback option that you can just latch on to for 18, 22 million dollars, somebody that won't kill your salary cap, when that is no longer an option, now you're going to be one of two things. You're going to be pot committed to somebody that is absolutely swallowing a large chunk of your salary cap, or you're going to have to dip back into the draft. I think we're going to see teams start to press the reset button more than ever. And we're going to see quarterbacks looking to get paid every single time they have the opportunity to because contracts will reinvent themselves. Think about it. Think about what it means when you get that max money in the NBA, right? So often when we see the max contracts that go out in the NBA, you can look at it and say, why'd they give that player the max contract? And the answer is because they had to. A decent player on an eh team that's available for the max contract gets that money because that's better than nothing. That's where we're going to be with quarterbacks better than nothing. You're going to reinvent the entire thing. Like what's Sam Darnold's actual worth going to be if everything goes right for the Jets? If they bring Sam Darnold back and he just lights it up or if they trade Sam Darnold and he goes to another team and he lights it up and they pick up his fifth year option. Everybody says, well, you know, while you get it negotiated, you just franchise him. The franchise tag in two years is going to be around 40 million bucks. You can't just franchise a quarterback for 40 million bucks. It's not that simple. So now all of a sudden, teams are going to have to be wholly committed to their quarterbacks quicker than ever because you've got to get ahead of the money that's being spent. And don't think that even if you get ahead of it, it's over. I mean, as much as we're talking about this Russell Wilson stuff, Russ wants to go to a new team, possibly he may want to get traded. Well, part of that, you think Russ is going to be happy going in and just playing on a deal where it's getting eclipsed by every other contract? I mean, if that situation doesn't go away and it gets more contentious, Russ is going to want to get paid again. And every single time a quarterback gets paid, remember, it changes the spectrum of where the high end is. It changes everybody. It's no different than when you're selling a house. You live in a neighborhood. You might have the nicest house in the neighborhood, but you're looking around and saying, man, I got to make sure that all the houses in the neighborhood are selling for as much per square foot as possible. Because when that happens, everybody makes money. That's the quarterback position in the NFL. Speaking of Russ, as this thing gets more contentious on Greeny today, Dan Orlovsky talked about the Seahawks and what they're doing in response to what Russ has done in saying he wants to be traded. This is what Orlovsky said. They want to play
2: hardball with Russell Wilson. You want to leak all that stuff? You want to make all those statements? You want your agent to throw a team there? Fine. We'll play that way as well. We're sick and tired of it, Russell. That's what I think they're saying. We're not You're not above the team. You're not above our organization. We love you. We think you're a great player. But we're not going to allow you to dictate to us how this is going to go. I've said this for weeks. He wants out. He wants out now. This isn't about football. This is about getting out. And I think the Seattle Seahawks are starting to sit there and go, we're not going to let you to control the narrative.
1: But at some point through all of it, it's not about football. It's not about winning games. It's about the contracts that are signed. I mean, so what if, they, if they're going to sit there and put a line in the sand? I mean, Russ Wilson at this point next year is going to make $35 million, and the dead cap hit would be absolutely atrocious if, he tries, if they try to get rid of him. We've talked about that, right? But that's the contractual side that now will impact every single business decision that's being made at the quarterback position. It's already about business. You hear that all the time from former players that will tell you, dollars and cents rule the NFL. Well, if that's the case, if dollars and cents rule the NFL – how, how much can a team afford to listen to the quarterback? They're going to have to pay the quarterback so much money that then you could think that the team's trapped. But then what happens for everybody involved? This is the tricky situation that's coming from the money that's being spent at one position. Look, I'm never, be, be very clear here, I will never fault a player for going out and getting theirs. And anytime a player can be entrepreneurial enough to make $40 million a year, I want that all day, every day. What we have to do as consumers of the NFL is reset our expectations and understand that now the going rate, like it or not, whether it makes sense or not to fans, it doesn't matter. The going rate for a pretty good quarterback in the next one to two years is going to get into the 30 range, in the $30 million range. And your favorite team better be better than ever at drafting because if all they have is an okay quarterback, they're going to have to surround that guy with enough talent to win a bunch of games, or they're going to have to reset and roll the dice to the draft all over again. That's the modern NFL, and it's been created in part by the contracts that are being signed. That's some straight talk, straight talk wireless, no contracts, no compromise. Coming up, I'm going to bring in a former NFL GM. I'll ask him what he thinks of my theory, and we'll talk about tag day in the NFL. That's all coming next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast.
1: Today was a mad scramble across the NFL with teams franchising and cutting players left and right as they attempt to deal with a unexpectedly smaller salary cap as a result of COVID, which is going to impact everything that happens over the course of the next few weeks in the NFL. So we want to bring on some expertise. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app. SiriusXM xm channel 80 jason Fitz flying solo tonight and i want to head straight over to the goodyear hotline now i just told you guys that i think the middle class is dead at this point when it comes to quarterbacks you either got one that's on a rookie deal or all of a sudden you are paying what looks like it's going to be you know 30 million dollars for an okay quarterback in the next couple of years how do teams deal with that i need some expertise for that we're joined by friend of the show randy mueller of the football gm podcast been over 30 years in the nfl as an exec randy Tell me how teams are going to deal with, I mean, when you've got Dak making 40, which I I never want to fault a player for getting his, I keep looking at the economics moving forward, and it feels like if you're a fan of a team that has a top half of the league quarterback, a pretty good quarterback, that number to re-sign that quarterback in the next year or two is going to reach the 30s, and that's an inevitability. Am I seeing this wrong?
2: Well, I'll tell you what, good to be with you for starters, but yes, I think you're on the right track. I think the middle class is getting cut out. That's for sure. I, I had, had proposed a couple different deals for those middle-of-the-road guys, and we're going to see it. You know, the Dak deal is done now, and I'm with you. I don't begrudge him. Um, I'm not surprised at the numbers. The Cowboys strung it out so long and, and in my opinion, misplayed it long enough that they were going to have to pay the piper. And I wouldn't really even call it a negotiation. It was almost like a holdup. <laughs> Dak was going to get whatever he wanted and did. But there's some other guys now licking their chops. You've got Baker Mayfield in Cleveland. What's going to happen with Sam Darnold? Some of these quarterbacks that haven't really taken the next step yet, but a decision is going to have to be made on them. And you're right; I think the days of the 25 million a year quarterback are maybe disappearing. There's no middle of the road. There's no bridge deals anymore. And then the decision comes when you do pay 140 million. Are you going to be able to surround him with enough people to actually put a Super Bowl team on the field? Because as you know. No team has won a Super Bowl committing that much cap to one position. So that's going to be a a historic breaker, something that breaks through at that point. At some point, maybe. I don't know. Well,
1: and that's what's really interesting to me too, Randy, because if you start thinking about the, the quarterbacks that need help and think about how many players you need to bring into them and then having to pay that quarterback such an astronomical amount, does that mean that teams are going to have to sort of uh, except resetting, going back through the draft process more often with quarterbacks instead of taking risk uh, maybe a little too early on a mid-level quarterback that they already have in the building?
2: Well, I think that's possible. That's for sure. I think you, you have to look no further than the Cowboys with Dak. That team wasn't a good team with Dak. And so the fact that they have him signed now for really three years, in my opinion, so we're going to be back talking about this in three years, but they don't have a very good team. They've got a defense that stunk. So they've got to find a way to find personnel that upgrades that they've got to get their offensive line together they're not done remaking that team and they're going to have to do it now on a limited budget this year so yeah you have hard decisions I think you're definitely going to have to stay the course of building through the draft but I think more than ever GMs and decision makers are going to have to cross the, the bridge of finding ascending talent that's just not worked out in other places so I still think you're going to have to find the perfect fit guys guys that didn't work out in one city because the defense didn't suit their skill set or a receiver that wasn't asked to do certain things at a position for one team that can excel in your system. So I think it's all about finding the right fit and spending the right amount of dollars to spread it out over the whole course of your roster.
1: Well, and those tough decisions, I can't imagine having to make. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio, Jason Fitz talking to Randy Mueller. You can check out the football GM podcast and uh, former NFL exec and GM of the saints and dolphins uh, today. We saw one decision that I, I sort of raised an eyebrow with, with the Buccaneers deciding to franchise tag Chris Godwin and let Shaq Barrett, essentially, they're going to have to let Sha- Shaq Barrett test the market. With the emphasis that we have on particularly pass rushers, Randy, were you surprised by that decision?
2: Well, I, I not really, because I think Godwin is their best receiver. I think it is their best all-around weapon when healthy. So it doesn't surprise me that an offensive coach and one that, you know, has made his living on that side of the ball forever, chose to protect him. The one thing about Shaq is, and yes, he can rush the passer, but it's always been a little bit about fit with him. Is he a linebacker? Is he a rusher? Do you only play him in nickel situations? I think you can find those guys out there. In particular, in this draft, I think there's some edge rushers that are available as well. And that's not to say they won't get him back. Just because he enters free agency doesn't mean that they've, you know, exhausted every chance to have him back. Maybe they just don't can't settle on the number and somebody else settles on it for him, and then the Buccaneers get a chance to match or not. But that's the way I see those deals being made is that you can only tag one. In their case, they went with offense. That's what the coach wants, and I agree with it. I think Godwin's good, and and there's more of replacements that they are more options, so to speak, for a guy like Shaq Barrett. It's all about options.
1: Randy, with the options being part of the conversation, I mean, you've got. Shaq Barrett, we just mentioned Bud Dupree coming off of an ACL injury. You've got Yannick Ngakwe, who multiple teams have let walk out of the building. And that's always a a concern to me, you know, outside looking in saying, man, you don't let great pass rushers go. But a couple of teams decided to over the course of the last year. So if
2: you're trying to evaluate these pass rushers, who stands out to you? Well, the thing is, you, you really can't employ just a pass rusher because that's half the game. And that's the problem when I talk about fit. You've got to be able to play the run as well. A guy like Nindokwe, for example, has been through three teams, not because he can't rush the passer. That's been determined that he can. He struggles against the run and setting the edge and being physical enough at the point of attack. So it's the all-around guys that you're struggling to find. So you've got to kind of pick your spots. I think there are some pass rushers um, actually on Tampa Bay's team, and so they felt like they had uh, a way around uh, the Shaq Barrett deal. But I'm still not convinced they won't get him back at some point.
1: We're talking to Randy Mueller, it's Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz uh, flying solo tonight. Another big uh, decision today, Allen Robinson franchised uh, by the Bears. The Bears may not have a quarterback, but at least they have a wide receiver. I mean, when you're in that building and you look around and say, okay, we don't have a quarterback option that really stands out. I mean, do you franchise the the receiver and just say, hey, we're going to go all in on on building the best roster we can, or do you try a totally different approach?
2: I think it's 100%. I think Allen Robinson would have been gone. So they couldn't afford to take a step back. He's the one playmaker they have. So that's just protecting the asset that we have. They're still looking. Obviously, they're going to exhaust every option to try to find a quarterback. But I think that if he would not have been tagged, he would have been out the door just because of where they've been on offense the last couple of years. So time will tell. Can they upgrade a quarterback? We'll see. They obviously need to. Um, Robinson would have gotten big money elsewhere, that's for sure. And maybe they still work out a long-term deal with him.
1: Is there any hesitation to big-term money for wide receivers given how each draft class over the last few years seems to be giving us yet another great group of young receivers to come into the league?
2: Yeah, you know, it's a great point. I've thought about that the last couple of weeks and checking out these receivers that are eligible for the draft. It's another great group, like you say. So I do think there's some merit, and I wouldn't question a team if, if they decided to do that. I think – the Steelers have been a a great window into how teams view that they've drafted receivers in the second round the last three or four years. And all of them have turned out pretty good. That might be the best way at all to stock your roster with receivers. And so they'll do it on rookie contracts. That's the kind of blueprint in my opinion that I would look for, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's again, it, it, there's no single way that's been proved to be able to do it. I think it's all about options, and if you can give yourself some of those options, you're going to find deals, and deals mean lower numbers, and that means more money for everybody else on your roster.
1: Randy, we appreciate your time and expertise. It's been a crazy day in the NFL. I wouldn't, uh, nobody I'd rather have help me break it down. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Jason. Good to talk to you again.
1: Be sure to check out the Football GM Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you know, I, it, it's such a curious spot to me because every organization is going to have to figure out what they value and what they're willing to go out and say, hey, we are strong at doing this. This is the position we're strong at analyzing. And because we can scout this well, we'll go ahead and bring in rookie talent at this position, but we need help over here. That's a very difficult thing always, but it's a weird line in the sand to find, particularly in a year where the draft looks so uncertain i keep saying it and i'll say it every day until i get everybody to hear it this is the strangest draft you will ever see given the opt-outs given the lack of pro uh, scouting combine given the lack of pro days for so many of these guys like this is a curious time with the draft and that's going to impact free agency coming up because what you know at this point what you know is in the building who you know and how you can deal with them matters more than ever i think it impacted today's franchise tags and it will impact the moves coming up there's a lot of uh action coming out of kansas right now obviously big story on less miles that we covered last week we're going to get the latest on kansas's approach to it plus some breaking news for the jayhawks that's called coming up next spain and fits on espn radio and the espn app
0: you're listening to the spain and fits podcast
1: spain and fits on espn radio the espn app and sirius xm channel 80 jason Fitz flying solo tonight we're presented by progressive insurance now We'll get back into some of the NFL action as today was franchise tag day across the league. A lot of cuts, a lot of tags, but there are other things that I want to get to tonight throughout the course of the show. One thing that I was pretty adamant about last week was uh, the action or lack thereof from LSU uh, regarding Les Miles. And I was pretty strong in my statement that Kansas was now on the clock and needed to do something. What were they going to do? What kind of statement would Kansas make? Well, as you just heard, we we know that statement as Kansas has parted ways with less miles. I want to get some expertise on that and all things uh, going on uh, around there. So to do that, we go to one of our friends of the show, Sports Radio 810 WHB in Kansas City's Saran Petro. Saran, man, I always appreciate like there's a bat phone. Something's going on in KC. We pick it up. You answer it. I truly appreciate it, man. And, and you know, a lot of times we're having fun and we're talking about light stuff. This is not light, obviously. As the uh, the allegations against Les Miles through LSU have been uncovered, Kansas made a very quick decision to part ways with him. What went into their decision from what you know?
3: You know, they did make a quick decision, uh, and I think it's the right thing to part ways. Uh, The debate that's going on in Lawrence, Kansas right now is the one point nine nine million dollar check he's getting to go out the door. Uh, owed about eight million, so he 's not getting everything that he was owed. Uh, the rest of his contract was for eight million, uh, so you know he 'd need to be fired with cause uh, to get none of that uh, without cause he gets it all uh, so you can figure there right how how those contracts usually work there's a bit of vagueness to it, and negotiations tend to go the way of who had more on their side. Uh, the fact that seventy five percent of the money didn 't go to him would say that uh, this leaned more towards the cause side than the non cause but what makes this even trickier for Kansas. Uh, is the fact that when they fired David Beatty, who preceded Les Miles, very popular guy, um, but but a guy that wasn't getting it done, but but had really endeared himself to a lot of people. People hated that they had to fire him. They all agreed that it was time to make a change. And when they did, uh, after agreeing to his buyout, uh, which was about $3 million, uh, they came back a month or two later and said, wait a minute, we think we found some things. Uh, we're firing you because we're not going to pay you. And, of course, you get into the pandemic uh, you're piling up legal bills. They ended up then settling for $2.5 million, paid about 500000 in legal bills. So they paid the same and really kind of got dragged through the mud. So people are wondering, when you had a guy like David Beatty that everyone seemed to think was at least a good guy and trying to do the right thing, why did you go find a reason to try to fire him for cause now with Les Miles that you've got a mountain of evidence and you're giving him $1.99 million uh, in about, you know, what, 72 hours after the report comes down on Friday – uh, a lot of Kansas people and, and some of the Kansas people with money are scratching their heads saying, why are you doing it this way this time?
1: One of the more amazing things, though, when you talk about these these numbers for a buyout, it feels like play money considering some of the buyout numbers we've heard from other schools. But it's a reminder that the economics are different for every, every department at every school trying to figure these things out. Should Kansas have been aware of any of these things going into their uh, relationship with Les Miles?
3: Uh, ultimately I, I think the answer would be yes and it's funny you mentioned the, the dollars i remember when they signed less miles for about two million dollars and you said to yourself "Wait a minute, this is a guy that's won a national championship and you're getting him for two million dollars and you're getting him to come to kansas a place that's hard to win now he and jeff long have a relationship going back to their days at michigan you knew that that played a role in it but it, the numbers seemed low and now you wonder is it because everybody else in college football knew that there were some skeletons in the closet i i don't know maybe it's just You know, nobody wanted Les Miles for whatever reason. Uh, Maybe it's Jeff Long was able to talk him into a lower number. But the number did seem low for the amount that he was paid, having won a national championship and all the success he had at LSU. And that was the big subject today when Jeff Long had his Zoom press conference was what did you know? Did you ask him? Jeff Long said point blank that, yes, we asked him, is there anything that can come back and that's out there that that would be harmful uh, to your reputation to Kansas? And Les Miles told me no. That's what uh, Jeff Wong said today. He was then hit with the question, well, then, you know, he lied to you. Uh, then wouldn't that be reason for cause? Uh, wouldn't that be a reason to pay him nothing? And he kind of tapped down, uh, tapped around that and didn't give a real answer. And he was asked again, you know, how does it make you feel? Someone you knew uh, that you were friends with that, that lied to you. And he said, well, we worked together. We weren't, you know, we weren't that close. But earlier on, he had said, I consider him a friend. So it's, it's, a, it's a weird dynamic. There was clearly a relationship there. Uh, he was clearly, according to everyone I've talked to at Kansas, no one there had any idea this was coming. And the question is should they have known, right? That's the question you ask me. Uh, you would want them to know, but it seems like nobody down in Louisiana knew for the last seven years. So how much could you really, you know, how much information could you get over 48, 72 hours while you're vetting a, a potential coaching hire? I think the thing that's, that really makes it worse in Lawrence is the fact that there was never any other candidate. And under deposition, in the lawsuit that went down between he and David Beatty, he was asked, who else did he interview? And Jeff Wong struggled to come up with another name as to anyone else that he interviewed. It seemed certainly like this was the only guy he was going to hire, which makes you certainly question more, uh, did he actually do the due diligence that's necessary? And last time he was asked, would they use a search uh, committee? He said, no, that's my job. That's what I'm here to do. This time, it's already been announced that a search committee will be part of the equation to find a new head coach.
1: Well, and it speaks to something broken in the hiring process. They have to move so quickly when they hire coaches. There's so little background opportunity. Sir Petro joining us from Sports Radio 810 WHB in Kansas City. Uh, I mean, anybody that's been around college football knows now they're behind the eight ball at a level that could take years to recover from when you're making a change at coach right now. Uh, What are they going to do?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And I asked uh, Jeff Wong today, I said, you know, you, you mentioned you've, you've got an acting head coach. You said you're looking for, a, are you looking for a coach to serve one year the way John L. Smith did uh, at Arkansas uh, in, in a role the way. I forget the Wake Forest coach that, that filled in for one year at Baylor. You know, these late changes, you know, it's, you're not really getting the best uh, talent pool. And, and you can usually hire a head coach, right? If they're not a, a sitting head coach or they have a buyout, you can buy that out. But getting a staff together gets really difficult this late in the year. So are you looking for someone that's just going to coach with this staff? and then make all the changes next year. Well, you know, everybody who can get a job will get a job. And that's, that's one of the other things. A couple of coaches had left for backward moves or lateral moves here over the last couple of months, which kind of signaled some red flags that, hey, maybe something's going on here uh, when that happens. So I think they're in a difficult spot. There's some names. Uh, Leifold at, at uh, Buffalo is a popular name uh, who supposedly finished second at Illinois. A popular name here locally is Kevin Kane. He's the uh, assistant head coach and outside linebackers coach at Illinois. I've uh, been defensive coordinator at Northern Illinois under under Dave Doran, played football at Kansas, had one year at Kansas, is from Kansas City, and, and looks like he's ready for that next step. And because of the ties uh, to Kansas City, that's a name that gets brought up as well. So, you know, Jeff Long told me today, he said he didn't know. He said, you know, we're just in the first stages. Would it be an interim? And then let's go back out on the trail uh, when, when the, the whole coaching pool uh, is available. Uh, He said it's too early to tell right now. So I think really everything is on the table right now for the direction Kansas will go.
1: Can't say enough about Lance Leipold, too. I I think he's a a star and would be a great fit. Uh, So, what's the conversation about Jeff Long's future now?
3: Yeah, I think that's the big conversation here. There are a lot of people at Kansas that don't want him to get the next hire uh, because they say, listen, what good hires he had. He was hit point blank today during the uh, press conference. You know what? What would you say to, to Kansas fans? Uh, what, what's the reason why you should be trusted to make this hire, uh, based upon uh, you know the, the failures of your coaches at Arkansas? And he said, "In what way?" And the response was, "Well, on the field, and when it comes to Bobby Petrino, I'm not even going to go there as to how that ended. Uh, so you know, when you when you hired Petrino, that ended very badly at Arkansas, and then you hired Les Miles. It's not it's not ending well. Uh, it's a real question now." Look, there are reasons, you know, a, a buddy of mine I work with here, Todd Lebo, says, you know, you never really know anyone. You think you know someone, but unless you live with them, you never really know them. And even if you live with them, you might not know them. And I think that's a great point. And it's entirely possible that Jeff Long has just been stung a couple of times with bad luck with Bobby Petrino and Les Miles, how it ended. It's also possible he looks past character and it's blown up in his face twice. And I think it's a real question. The problem for Kansas is, they need a football coach. They need someone to run the operation. And if they're looking for an athletic director while they're looking for a football coach, you know, can you can you really get both of those things done? This this is a football program that's been spinning its wheels for a long time and it needs, you know, leadership and it needs it right away. It doesn't need the wrong leadership right away, right? It's still more important to get the right guy, but they need someone in place. And Kansas fans will point out, you know, Bill Self was actually hired by an interim athletic director. They fired the A D when it was clear, Al Bull and Upset Roy Williams, Roy Williams left anyway. They had an interim a d who went out and hired Bill Self now Bill Self winning at Illinois uh, was as much of a slam dunk hire as you could make and and by the way, he was going to Kansas basketball. It's very different uh trying to woo somebody to Kansas football. It doesn't carry the same cachet that that Kansas basketball does, so there's some similarities there, but I think Jeff Long has a decent chance uh to make it through uh because you know who else, if not him, then who is going to do the work that needs to be done with this football program right here. But uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a guarantee, and I would say he's on tenuous ground, and he needs to find a win. You know, somewhere out there, he needs to do something that, that is a positive because not that everything's been a negative, but there's no big win for him to hang his hat on right now. And there's certainly at least one big L with the last Miles ending and how the David, uh, David Beatty lawsuit went. Most people consider that a loss on his resume as well.
1: All right, sir. And real quick, before we let you go, you mentioned Kansas basketball. They're in the news with some COVID protocols they're going to be missing two players, Tristan Arunia and uh, David McCormick more, more, significantly going into this big 12 tournament. What can you tell us about how they're dealing with that and what's next for them?
3: It's going to be difficult. They just finally settled into a four out one in with David McCormick really emerging as the player they thought he'd be for the last three years. That is a big, big loss. Uh, Bill Self would not answer the question when I asked him today, is this, positive COVID tests or contact tracing. They said because of HIPAA rules, I can't comment, but did say that they're on pace to be back for the NCAA tournament on Friday. Think about that. I I don't know when the positive test came down. You would think it's within the last day or two, maybe even this morning. Uh, But we're 10 days away. Most times when when these college basketball programs have had had a problem, it's been a problem that's lasted for a couple of weeks, they're saying the right things. You wonder if Bill Self is just feeding the committee what they want to hear to try to protect the seed. Uh, But he says that they should be, they're at least on track, to quote him directly, on track to be ready to go for the NCAA tournament uh, a week from Friday.
1: Listen to him on 810 WHB in Kansas City. Saran Petro, man, I appreciate you always helping us out with the info. Great stuff tonight. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. Small business protection just got easier. More than 30 coverage options available. Progressive's got you covered. More at progressivecommercial.com. All right. We just heard a little bit about Kansas and how they're dealing with the less Miles situation. Well, realistically, these things happen in sports. There's going to be controversy. There are going to be issues. But how schools handle it is significant, and not every school has done it the right way. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast.
1: In today's world, things happen. We all know that. Controversy happens. Issues come up. The question is, how do you deal with them? And more than ever, it's not just about transparency. It's about action happening swiftly, and it's about explanation of it. It's about all of it wrapped in together. One school has already quickly gotten it right, and another quickly got it wrong. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz, flying solo don't forget to subscribe to the spain and fits podcast you can get all of this sultry vocal that you want uh, right where you get your podcast sarah's not here to tell me it's not sultry so we're just gonna go with that and we're brought to you by wendy's proud sponsor of the 2021 john r wooden men's and women's player of the year and also the maker of the single greatest fast food item in history the junior bacon cheeseburger don't dip your fries in your frosty though they're meant to be kept separate we all know this like fries frosty separate things all right So Kansas is what we just talked about. And Kansas football uh, has quickly parted ways with Les Miles. They're working on whatever the buyout situation is going to be or whatever the final number is that he gets. But all of this is based on LSU and what happened in 2013 and investigations that LSU didn't do anything with. Now, last week, again, loudly I said it's up to LSU to now explain what they did. And I also said, Kansas, you're on the clock. What do you know? I think that was on Friday night I said that. By Monday night... Less Miles gone. I look at that and say, okay, tip of the hat. Kansas football does not necessarily have the economics some other programs have. They don't have the infrastructure some other programs have. I mean, I joked with it with Saran Petro out of Kansas City about the fact that, hey, you know, you've got uh, other schools that are paying $24, $25 million in pile. They don't even blink about it. Kansas is looking at it saying, well, what are we going to do with that $2 million here and that $2 million there? But that's real. And through all of that, they said, you know what? We'll figure it out. We'll figure that out, but what we know right now is based on what we've found from what he did years ago at LSU, he can't be a coach here. Kudos. All right, I'm going to slow clap that because uh, they stood for something. And that matters. As we've said repeatedly on this show, and I'll continue to say, at some point, the way that you handle every single situation will become a conversation in recruiting. It will become a conversation in media. It will become a conversation that you're going to have to answer in living rooms because that's the new world we live in. And I love all of this. Then I can turn around on the other hand of it and say, what is Creighton doing now? Creighton's men basketball uh, team found themselves in the news, not because of their good uh, season because they have played well. Uh, No, not at all. They found themselves in the, uh, in the news because of their coach. And we all saw this last week Uh, for anyone that didn't Craig McDermott, the head coach of Creighton basketball used a plantation analogy. When talking to his team, he said that everybody needs to have both feet in together uh, and use the word plantation. Now, What to do with that is a difficult question for a lot of people. But it's not a difficult question to me for the school. The school came out and said, you know what? We're going to do an indefinite suspension that turned out to be one game. One game. Who did they talk to in that process? What explanation did they give in that process? That's all stuff that we haven't heard. How did they make the decision for one game? What would it have taken for more? Again, this is the analogy I'll keep using for everybody. The best comparison I can make. What if... It was a math teacher that stood up in front of his class after a terrible test and said, you guys aren't putting in the right effort. I'm going to need all of you together on the uh, plantation. That analogy would have your normal math teacher or your econ professor, your physics professor, all of those people, they gone immediately. You don't survive that. When you're an educator at a school, you don't survive that certainly. But Creighton... Creighton has turned the other cheek. They've decided that, hey, we're gonna let this fly. Now, we can talk a lot about what it meant, right? We can talk a lot about uh, how you turn around and, and recidivism, right? And, and how you turn around and you make these things better. We can talk about second chances all day long. And I'm a big believer in second chances. I mean, I've had more than my fair share of second chances in my lifetime. My family has had more than their fair share of second chances in their lifetime. I can look at those things and say, yes, People make mistakes and they should have the opportunity to rebound from them. But a second chance doesn't necessarily mean that you get the second chance in the same place. No different than any other job that any of us have. If I say something on mic uh, in front of a microphone that gets me fired at ESPN, it doesn't mean that I can never work in media again. It doesn't mean that I can never get the opportunity to sit in front of a mic. It just means that that opportunity won't come at ESPN. If you make spreadsheets for a living and you uh, go in and get yourself fired because you stop showing up, it doesn't mean that you can't get a second chance somewhere else. See, we we suddenly turn second chances as a society when we want to use that argument into second chances in this environment with this job at this place. Doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Does McDermott deserve another opportunity to coach? Of course. I'm sure. Does he also need to go into whoever gives him that opportunity and explain what he did, why he did it, how he learned from it? Yeah, I think that's pretty natural. That's what any of us would have have, have to do. But that's not what Creighton has required him to do. Creighton required him to take one game, to sit in the corner and think about what he did. That's what this is, and it's a joke. Creighton basketball is having a good year. This is a fun year in college basketball to watch if you are into chaos because it is a chaotic year. And it seems like one week a team can be good. The next week a team can be bad. And while you're in the middle of all of it, the last thing you want to do when you're in this window where suddenly it's a strange year in college basketball, you're about to hopefully go to the NCAA tournament where you'll have the opportunity to really affect uh, the history of your school. You have the opportunity to make your school money. You have all of these great things coming. The last thing you want to be doing is looking for a new coach. But now that you're not looking for a new coach, now that you've given the line in the sand is one game, That's what you'll have to answer for. See, last week I said McDermott would have to stand in front of every recruit. When he sits on a living room couch, he'd have to talk to that family and say, you know what? Here's what I did, and here's why it happened. Well, now Creighton is going to have to answer that a question, a very important question. Why was it only worth one game? What message have you sent your coach? that using this analogy, an analogy that, according to some, had players ready to walk out and decide they don't want to play anymore. Why would you let that coach sit for one game to think about what he did? It's a shame for Creighton that they decided they would prioritize winning on the basketball court, and I realize that's the world we live in. I realize that. I am not stupid. I'm not naive. But realistically, they can make that decision, and that doesn't mean that we can't ask them to answer questions about why and we can't at least attempt to hold that decision to some level of accountability. That's all we can do. All right, coming up next, speaking of college basketball, it is championship week, and it is chaos across March Madness. We'll bring in one of my favorite experts next to tell you what to look for. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio.
0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast.
1: Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz Podcast, and I'm really excited for this. Game Changers. Something that we love doing because we get the opportunity to really focus on people that are doing things that have never been done before. So we're going to continue our celebration of Game Changers and Women's History Month by bringing in someone who's making history. Maya Shaka was recently announced as the NFL's first black woman on field official. We're thrilled to have her on the Goodyear Hotline. Maya, thanks so much for the time. I got to ask, what was it that made you want to do this when nobody that had ever been an official looked like you and had your background?
4: Um, I've always been the type of person that marches to, to beat to my own drum. So I didn't set out to be to do anything groundbreaking. I didn't set out to be the first. I just followed something that I absolutely love to do, and things fell in place, and I became a first at something. So, um, like I said, I'm I'm always used to being the only one. Growing up, I was always the only girl outside playing with all the boys. So this was just natural to me.
1: Is there a moment when you're on your journey where you look around and say, man? nobody's ever done this before it's going to be more difficult or does that just sort of ingrain in you
4: um yes and no I mean I, I you know I faced a lot of adversity you know growing up so I'm, I'm kind of sort of built um to face challenges but also you know Sarah was the first woman to do it and you know regardless of race like she probably faced a lot of the same things that I'm facing um you know just trying to break through a ceiling so I'm just happy that she was able to do it first and She took a lot of heat before me, and I'm able to learn from her.
1: You mentioned Sarah Thomas. We've had her on the show a few times, friend of the show at this point. So what kind of advice did Sarah (laughs) give you?
4: Uh, When I first met Sarah, when I joined Conference USA, she told me um, to never really put an emphasis on being a woman or being a black woman, just being official. And she says, as long as you just focus on being official first, they're going to respect you for that. Um, Just try not to draw attention to yourself in any other light. And that was probably the best advice that I can have, especially starting, um, working in division one football and it just has worked since then.
1: We're talking to Maya Shaka, the NFL's first black woman on field official, Spain and Fitz chasing Fitz. You mentioned working D one football and I work around a lot, a lot around college football, those fans, it gets loud. It gets angry. I mean, what kind of response did you have even at that level when you started your rise?
4: So it's pretty crazy with the fans. You don't really hear what they say in our games because they're so far up. It's a lot different from basketball where you can hear them. Um, The most thing I've gotten, you know, when I go to the locker room, you get the typical ref you suck, but every ref gets that. You know, it's not just me. Um, So it all depends on, you know, if the home team's winning or losing at that point, what kind of things you're going to hear from the fans. So you just kind of sort of take it and let it roll off your back.
1: That's just a reminder that you're so, but like, I always say, um, am I like, realistically, I say, I'm not going to listen to any of that. And then I pull up Twitter after a show half the time. And I'm like, I just need to shut it off. I don't know how y'all do it. Like it's, it's, it's own beast. Now you've been in the NFL development program for a while though. And you know, there's this moment here where we're watching the league make a real commitment to better diversity. Do you feel like the floodgates are about to open and we're going to see more officials that come in that
4: are female and that are black? I hope so. And I hope it happens um, in the near future that, you know, we don't have to wait so long as 2021. Um, so, you know, I know that we have a few, few more women that are in the pipeline and I know they're preparing just as hard as I prepared and hopefully they'll be able to reach this level soon.
1: Now, obviously the players, uh, you have, you build a relationship with them over time. I understand that, but have you had any reaction or response so far from players in the league to the announcement?
4: Um, Not, not since the announcement, uh, I don't think players really know how to contact me, and that's okay. Uh, when I see them on the field, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, when I see them on the field, I'm pretty sure they'll have something to say. Normally, they have. Like in the past, when I was in training camps, like OTAs, a lot of them, you know, would just tell me that they're proud of me for being here and thank you, and you know, just you know, they were happy to see me there. Until I mess a call up, and then they're upset. But you know, that's a different story.
1: Do you almost want that, though? Like, at some point, they're going to be mad, right, inevitably in the game. So, in the world of, hey, it means I'm being accepted, like, is there a moment where when they're coming at you, you realize that you really just – they they're accepting you for exactly what you do and who you are?
4: Exactly. I mean, they're passionate about what they do, it's just as much as I'm passionate about what I do. And when you have that kind of passion, all you want to do is get something right. And on our end, we always want to be correct. But, you know, we want to work a perfect game, and players want to have the perfect game. So I just respect that about them.
1: We're talking to Maya Shaka, the NFL's first black woman on field official, Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz. And Maya, uh, obviously, firsts are always difficult to anticipate. But for you, when you're going to get out there and you're going to have that first game, do you have anything in your pregame ritual or any moment that you're going to take to try and soak what's happening in?
4: Uh, I really haven't developed one yet for this level. So I, I have plenty of time. I know some things that I normally do in college, they may not necessarily be applicable um, to the pros. So I'm just ready to learn from my crew and just to see how I can fit in with my crew. I'm excited to to find out, you know, who I'll be working with and then I'll work from there.
1: I think one of the coolest things about talking to anybody that's just breaking through uh, all perception here is the message it can send to future generations, Maya. So if you were talking to a little girl right now that thinks about being an official, what would you tell them?
4: Uh, I'll tell them to go ahead and follow their dreams. Go for it. If it's something that you're serious about and you're passionate about it, don't let anything hold you back, regardless of any limitations you may think you have. I mean, obviously, I never played pro football. I never played organized football. But I didn't let that stop me from actually learning the game and potentially mastering the game. So just find what it is that you love and don't be afraid to work hard at it.
1: Maya, what's the, the toughest part of your job? Because we all yell at officials on Sundays when the calls don't go our way, fans and players, right? So what's the thing we don't get that makes it the most difficult?
4: Wow. That's okay, I, like, right. I don't know about the most, diffi- most difficult job on the field. I'll say the most difficult thing about an official is just learning, ha- learning how to have patience, having patience about your career and being patient about um, moving in the right direction. You have a lot of officials that try to move faster than what they're progressing. And you just have to learn to wait your turn. I think that's the most difficult thing for officials now because you have a lot of up-and-coming officials that just want to shoot straight out the gate and skip certain levels when they haven't mastered the level that they're on yet. And I think that's real important.
1: That's interesting to me, Mike, because we always talk about how the play has evolved on the field from the players and how they get bigger and stronger and they study everything. How does it evolve for people that want to be officials? Like, How are you guys different than previous generations when you were coming
4: in? So right now, they have uh, uh, more study groups going on. So there's more exposure. There's also a lot more film sessions that are available to officials to help them grow. Um, There's just more out there, more materials, especially with the COVID. There's been so many, like, Zoom sessions um, with experienced officials leading them and trying to give back and trying to make everybody else stronger underneath. So obviously, the game is evolving. The game's becoming faster. So it's imperative that you make sure that you study up and you're watching enough film so that when you are on the field, um, plays don't look brand new to you. When It's not like the first time you're seeing something. You're used to seeing it. So uh, that's the beauty about officiating is you have to be prepared to work those plays, and you can't be prepared if you've never seen them before.
1: Maya, I cannot thank you enough for giving us the time. I cannot say congratulations loud enough. And I promise that unless you make a call I don't like against my beloved Raiders, I will cheer for you as loudly as I can (laughs) every single Sunday. We appreciate you hanging out with us on Spain and Fitz. Thanks so much, Maya.
4: Well, thank you for having me.
1: I mean, I have to be honest with Maya. Like, there's no way I'm not going to yell at her if she, you know, calls anything against the Raiders because – Last time I checked, they've never actually committed a real penalty, in, in case you haven't met, haven't figured that out. By the way, if you've never heard the Game Changer segments before, get out to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Uh, you can see some of the old episodes. We love uh, the opportunity to talk to people that are changing the world forever, and that's what's happening more and more. I am genuinely curious to see because we know so little about the officiating pipeline and development process. I wonder how, mon- how many officials we're going to be some- seeing coming through that pipeline over the course of the coming years that will make the league look so different. In, in the meantime, speaking of looking different, the NBA second half is about to get rolling. We'll break it down next. Has one team gone from title contender to absolutely irrelevant? I think so, and it might be a mistake. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast.
1: Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, SiriusXM XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo. A little Def Leppard there. If you missed it earlier, check it out in the Spain and Fitz podcast. Stosh, producer extraordinaire, and I had a little conversation about that. Hey, Stosh, what was your first concert? You mentioned you went to see Def Leppard and Tesla a few years ago. What was your first concert?
2: (laughs) Okay, so I swore I'd never reveal this. My absolute very first concert, 1983, Barry Manilow.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Oh, I don't know why you wouldn't admit that. Barry Manilow's a legend. I, you know, there was. How old were you then? You were, you were just eighty-three. Chicken. I'd have been. I think when I went, I would have been like nine. Okay, okay, that counts. I mean, that's, that's a. You know, I'll never forget my first concert was Bon Jovi Skid Row, in uh, in Maine, and I remember Sebastian Bach walked out on stage, the lead singer of Skid Row, and he said, "Hello, Seattle, Washington, or wherever the blank we are." And the crowd just started just (laughs) relentlessly booing him because he didn't know he was in Scarborough. So I always had that fear for my entire career on the road that we would say the wrong city. And what do you know? It happened in Buffalo that uh, our set lists every night had the city listed on top of it. It would always say the name of the city so that nobody would say the wrong thing. And we got out on stage, and one of the, uh, the Perrys stood up in front of the mic and said, hello, Cleveland, uh, ironically, uh, because we were in Cleveland the night before, which I already thought was funny. But then we all realized we were in Buffalo. So I, oh, I've lived it now. Yeah, there God. we go. No, I did, also, have, I did have the Barry Mantle of phase, I will admit, not bad. Um, it's a good phase.
2: Like I appreciate music. I, I, you know, I'm not the talented musician as you are, but I do appreciate the music.
1: The other thing I remember from my first concert was thinking my dad was sure smoking a lot of cigarettes. Found out, figured out later it was not that. So (laughs) uh, there we go. Uh, There's my awkward uh, concert story from my childhood. The NBA is back. The second half is here for us. I do want to get everybody caught up on a serious uh, situation happening with the NBA. For anyone that hasn't seen the story, Miami Heat Center Myers Leonard uh, went on. He was on a live stream while playing video games and used a racial slur in that process. Now, the NBA has said they're investigating it. He's already released a statement uh, he posted to his Instagram saying, quote, I am deeply sorry for using an anti-Semitic slur during a live stream yesterday. While I didn't know what the word meant at the time, my ignorance about its history and how offensive it is to the Jewish community is absolutely not an excuse, and I was just wrong. I'm now more aware of its meaning, and I'm committed to properly seeking out people who can help educate me about this type of hate and how we can fight it. Is can that's portion of his statement again the nba is still in the process of gathering more information they uh, have also said quote the nba unequivocally condemns all forms of hate speech so we'll see how it goes several sponsors in the video game world have already started to drop leonard as a result of this and there will be fallout and this is a reminder that uh, you've got to know what you're saying and uh, you know i i appreciate myers coming out and issuing an apology, but I think that there's more to to this at this point as we've got to find out sort of the process behind it. And the NBA needs to let us know what they're going to do about it. So we'll keep you updated on it. But in the meantime, we hit the second half of the season, and it's really surprising to me. Now, I'll be fair. I think that the NBA has become a little bit like a Netflix show. And by that, I mean how often we become in a binging society Uh, You guys know I watch a lot of trash TV, right? Like, I I love Below Deck on Bravo. Hit me up, guys. I want to come on the show. So I watch a lot of Below Deck. And Below Deck, much like a lot of Netflix shows, uh, I'm not sure that the show was always great. The hour that you get where you're watching it has its ups and downs. But man, where do they hook you? Every time. They hook you with a next time on like that's the moment that you get it. There's always some big ending to the Netflix show that makes you watch the next season or or the next episode or you get this little teaser of next time on. And before you know it, you're sucked into a whole nother hour of watching whatever this show is. That's a little what the NBA has become because we're constantly looking at what's going to happen next for the league as the thing to look forward to, whether it's Curry owns a house in LA, and that means he's going to sign with the Lakers. Like, it doesn't matter. We're constantly obsessed over what's next with the NBA because, frankly, what's happening right now doesn't hold our interest sometimes. A great example of losing interest in what's happening right now are the Bucs. I mean, the Bucs have become invisible. It's not that long ago. We were obsessed over everything Milwaukee did because were they going to be able to sign Giannis was more interesting than anything the Bucs were actually going to do on the on the court. Win, lose, it didn't matter. Everything became about, well, can the Bucks find a way to keep Giannis in Milwaukee? Because as I've said, if that didn't happen, the Bucs would become worse than bad. They'd become irrelevant. I'm not sure that hasn't already happened in some way. I mean, amazingly, we were so obsessed over the drama of where the Bucs were headed that now where we see where the Bucs are in the East, which is a very good basketball team, that's not enough. Blake Griffin signs with the Nets, adds yet another component to Brooklyn. feels like we're all just, we're set on Brooklyn going. And to that point, it not only overshadows a Philly team that's been better than most of us expected, but it particularly overshadows Milwaukee. If you don't believe me, I'm not the only one asking, uh, being asked questions about it. Rachel Nichols from The Jump, one of our best, joined Barton Hahn, and she was asked specifically, can the Bucks win the East? It's a tough
2: field in the East, and there was a feeling last year season, as interrupted and bubbly as it was, that that was going to be Giannis and the Bucks window, because everyone knew Kevin Durant was coming back. Now, we didn't know that they would collect James Harden and now I guess Blake Griffin with him, but we knew that threat would be coming out of Brooklyn. Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons look great in Philadelphia, so I think the path is harder than it was last year. They may be better than they were last year, but it's, it's going to be a difficult thing for them to be good enough.
1: Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. And think about it. The 76ers who are rightfully so getting so much love for how good they are. They're 24 and 12. The Bucs are 22 and 14. They're two games back. So it's like, it's not that the Bucs to Rachel's point at the end, they may be better this year, but that's not going to be good enough. I mean, that's the real situation here. We've become, as I always say, so championship or bust obsessed as a sports culture that the only way we're going to pay attention to anybody is if they win it all, which means suddenly having a really good team in the regular season that has a shot at it, just ask the Jazz, doesn't really give a lot of conversation. I mean, when's the last time you heard anybody really come out and lead a whole NBA segment just on a normal show talking about the Jazz and the Suns? I can answer the question for you. It's never because the Lakers and the Clippers are the more interesting story. They're the more interesting next time on. You know, and, and so through all of it, I'm looking at an NBA, a second half of a season where the Jazz are 27 and not, where the Suns are 24 and 11, and you got those two, where the Bucks are 22 and 14, and they can't even be part of the conversation because we've all decided, myself included, that it's Lakers and Nets. Doris Burke, ESPN NBA analyst, was on Greeny with Mike Greenberg earlier, and she was asked who the favorite is to win the NBA championship. This is what Doris had to say.
4: I was on a podcast last week, and it basically put me on the spot and said, you know, who's going to win it? And I came down on the side of the Brooklyn Nets. I just think over a seven-game series, dealing with three of the most gifted offensive players in the league is going to be very hard. And then I, I look at a guy like uh, a Bruce Brown, who has figured out the perfect way to contribute on a team like that. You know, these understated pieces around these guys Bruce Brown, okay, I'm going to cut. I'm going to go hit a timely offensive board. I'm going to guard anybody you ask me to guard. Like, you need that kind of commitment from around those three guys, and I think you have it.
1: That's the hardest part about all of this is that everything Doris said makes total sense. And because all we want to focus on is who wins a championship because we've decided that everything short of a championship in the NBA particularly is completely devalued. I will say again, how many people are trashing the MVP of the NFL last year, Aaron Rodgers, for not winning a Super Bowl? It doesn't happen. But if you win the MVP in the NBA and you don't win a Super Bowl, you're hot garbage, your entire career is a joke, and you don't even deserve to be in the conversation. Like That's, that's how polar opposite they are, the way we look at these two different sports. And through all of that, we become so obsessed with just that one element. Doris is right. If I just put my logic hat and I take all of my feels away and I put my logic hat and I say, matchup wise, anybody better than the Nets in the East? The answer is clearly no. Matchup wise, anybody better than a healthy Lakers team in the West? To me, the answer is again, clearly no. I understand that there are deeper rosters, but there's no better duo in the NBA than what the Lakers can present. So it's really easy to look at the Lakers and the Nets and say that that's where we're going to end up with the NBA Finals. And that might be the case. But at what point do we find a line between enjoying that but also enjoying the ride that gets us there? The second half of the NBA's regular season is going to be an opportunity to watch the 76ers and see what they could do, to watch the Bucs and see how Giannis feels about being essentially invisible even though he's on a very good team. It's an opportunity to watch the unexpected story of the Jazz. It's an opportunity to watch great storylines and great individual games. The question is, will we stop with the maddening yelling about who's going to win it all and instead appreciate what we're seeing right now, which is a really fun season with a lot of great teams in the NBA? For one, I sincerely hope so. Because while the end result might end up being Brooklyn versus Lakers, the ride is going to be spectacular that gets you there. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Sarah's going to be back with us next week. Over the course of this week, you'll get a lot of college basketball. Coming up next, Freddie and Fitzsimmons. Last I heard, they're joined by Dak tonight. Dak coming on Freddie and Fitzsimmons. Got to check it out. Thanks for hanging out with us.
0: Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio.